You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, 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 welcome back. And again, welcome to Mosaic. If this is your first time, as always, we hope it's not your last. Uh, again, happy Grandparents Day. That's cool. That's today, all the grandparents, yeah. And yesterday, of course, as we all know, was the 20th anniversary, right, uh, of 9-11. And that's crazy to think about, right? 20, 20 years, a lot, of, a lot of people lost their lives that day, right? A lot of brave people, I think we should remember them, right? Brave firefighters, police officers. And if you remember, uh, I think uh, it's important to remember that uh, our moment then in, in, in the U.S., we really did come together that time, right? To mourn together and to pray together. I remember that and to sort of be there for one another. And I don't think we should forget that either. Um, but, you know, you, you, you flash forward 20 years and you look around these United States and a bit, it doesn't feel as united as we would like. Right, all right. Now certainly, uh, and I want to talk a little bit, little bit about that today, certainly a part of that, maybe a lot of that, comes from the reality, at least I feel this, that no matter who you are or, or who that you want to be, somehow you're, you're constantly being labeled or boxed in or reduced to a person who wears one of either two hats right now. You're a person who either wears a red hat or a blue hat. Right, we feel this. It's sort of like a twisted version of the Matrix meets Dr. Seuss. It's not red pill, blue pill. It's red hat, blue hat. No, sorry. That's as good as the jokes are going to get today. So if you, you want to laugh now, you let it out. Now's a now's your moment, right? But the point is, if you think of this about this issue, well, you're just a blue hat person. Or if you believe this about this issue, well, you're just a red hat person. But you're like, oh, I'm not. I'm not a totally hundred hundred percent red. Like I think that people are like, no, 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 no. You think that you're totally red. Like you're redder than Pastor Morgan with a sunburn because that's. That's, that's pretty red. Again, bad jokes, right? But uh, you believe this about this one issue, like you're bluer than jazz, and so put on your blue hat, because you're a blue hat person. And I, I don't think most of us are happy about this. Yeah. At least I'm not. I think, thank you. A couple of you aren't happy about it either, right? I don't think normal, healthy people are happy about this. They don't go around thinking like this. Like They don't react with, well, you're just a red hat person, so I don't like red hat people. Or you think this about this one issue, you're a blue hat person. I don't like blue hat people. And even, even for a lot of Christians now, it's just crazy to think about. Uh, a lot of Christians, it's become this weird, like nonsensical short step from, I think this about this one issue, maybe, maybe not connected to even the Christian scriptures, to now, I just can't go to that church anymore. Because for this one issue, they all wear red hats or they all wear blue hats. Like, where did that thinking come from? Like, what does that have to do with Jesus? Some people, though, they actually do love this. If you didn't know this, some people love putting red hats and blue hats on everybody. Why? Well, for starters, you can kind of feel good sometimes, right? Because you feel like, well, I'm in the club or I'm in, you know, that group. And I get that. And, but besides that, you know, you make a lot of money putting red hats Blue hats and everybody. You get a lot of power putting red hats, blue hats and everybody. You get a lot of ratings putting red hats and blue hats and everyone because things like fear and division, they can be super profitable, right? Because if you tell me there are terrible, awful people out there I should be afraid of and then you convince me that you will protect me from all those people and all I gotta do is give you my money and my vote to save me from the coming apocalypse that only you can prevent. Man, here's my money. 
Here's my vote, right? Like, like those racist Republicans are coming for you and only I can save you. Or the communist Democrats are coming for you and only I can save you. I'm like, really? You talk to every Republican, they're all racist. You talk to every Democrat, they're all communists. The louder and the meaner and the angrier you are right now, the more headlines you can get, the more your platform can grow and the more power than you can get to put hats on everyone, whether they want them or not, or like them or not. And just so you know, this isn't gonna be a don't have an opinion kind of message. That's not it. This is sort of the opposite. You'll see that. I've actually got a lot of strong opinions. <laughs> I've had a lot of stuff. I do. I do. I got some strong ones. You're looking at a person. I'll show you my cards now. You're looking at a person who's marched for racial justice, who's protested the right to the unborn. Both those issues are big issues for me. I think God cares about it all. So this isn't just don't have a conviction. You're like, well, that got real, you know, you know, or have an opinion kind of message. Listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's not into that. No, I'm in the conviction. It's not into the labeling. Okay. So if you're hearing this, you're thinking, man, this is a guy who won't take a stand. That's not it. I actually want to encourage you to take a stand today. But the kind of stand I want to encourage you to make, and it just might be, it just might be a different kind of stand in a different kind of place than the kind of stand and the kind of place a lot of people right now are shouting at you to take and to make. Because most of the time, and I learned this last year in spades, most of the time when people are shouting at me to take a stand and I ask, okay, well, what would that look like? Most of the time it's believe like I do. And I realize this, most of the time when people are shouting at me to take a stand, what they really mean is, Morgan, take my side, my side. What if, what if there were a different place altogether in which we could stand, a different place to stand first? And what if we stood in that place first and most, what if that could make the biggest difference of all right now? All right, but now that you're real nervous, wonder what I'm gonna say next. Welcome to week three of Differently the Same. We're just looking at our same core values at Mosaic of worship, community, and mission and seeing how they connect to our different cultural moment right now. We're looking at worship in the life of Abraham. We're looking at community in the life of Moses and then mission in the life of Elijah. And today is our final look at what worship looks like in the life of Abraham. And again, today I hope to show you that far from not taking a stand, what I want to try to show you today is why worship, worship, true Bible worship looks like taking a stand. Just maybe not in the place that you might have thought. Worship looks like taking a stand. I want to try to explore that thought. And to try to show you what that means and how we can do that, I want to take a look at an amazing story, again, from the life of Abraham. So here we go. Our story today takes place in Genesis chapter 18, where we see God initiating a whole conversation with Abraham once more. And if you've been here and you've been tracking, you know, you read Genesis, you know the pattern in their relationship has been this. God speaks, Abraham doubts, Abraham believes. And ultimately, that's a good thing, right? Because what God speaks, we should believe. He is God after all. And believing God is where faith begins. But here today, there's a different pattern here. It's not just God speaks, Abraham believes. It's God speaks, Abraham participates, participates. God's going to invite Abraham to participate in what he's doing in the hopes that Abraham will take a different stand in the world. And that conversation begins like this. 
Verse 17, then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, Abraham's standing there when God asked this. And so you're thinking, man, is God like, is he like senile? Is he like talking to himself? Is he like wandering in the kitchen, like in just his socks, looking for his car keys? Like, honey, where's my super suit again? You know, no, this is something I think more like a few years ago when in front of Carrie, in front of the kids, I said to Carrie, shall we tell the children where we're taking them? Right, what's that? That's inviting the kids into the conversation, into participation with what's about to happen. And that is what God's doing here. He's not just talking out loud to himself, talking with Abraham, inviting him in to participate in a certain way. Why is he doing this? Verse 18, it says, Abraham will surely, again, Abraham's right there. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. So God's saying here, reaffirming, I've called Abraham to be a blessing in the world. I want Abraham to be the kind of person who can do what's right in the world, do what's just in the world. And in order to do that, Abraham's gonna need to see something in my heart first. The same, I think, is true for you and for me. Do we wanna be people who can do what's right and just in the world? Yeah, yes, the answer is yes. We need to see what Abraham saw in God's heart first. What is that? Let's see how God brings Abraham and us into that. God goes on. It says, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So God here is letting Abraham in on the truth that he's about to bring judgment on these two cities, two ancient cities named Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Well, one word here, you heard it twice, tells you what's up. The word for outcry here comes from a Hebrew word that means shrieks of oppression. Shrieks of oppression. In other words, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, no matter what you were taught, weren't just primarily sexual in nature. It's part of it, but not primarily. These twin cities scorched, because that's what Sodom means, and they enslaved, because that's what Gomorrah means, the surrounding peoples to the point that God had to do something about it. So God's saying, Abraham, there's oppression happening here. What should I do about it? With this one statement, now God brings Abraham face to face, look at this, with two moral dilemmas. He's got to wrestle through. And the first moral dilemma is this. What kind of God is God? What kind of God is God? Let me ask you, what kind of God? It's kind of like, who, who is he? Is he a God of mercy, hmm? forgiveness? Because we say today, we like those things, right? We like mercy and forgiveness. But hear me, if God's only a being who only forgives, is only merciful, only lets off the hook, so to speak, and he does that, and he lets Sodom go, Gomorrah go here. What about all the people they're oppressing? Huh? Without a God of judgment, there's no hope for these oppressed people here. And that's why God is coming down here. And let's be honest, we kind of need this kind of God, right? Everybody's just nod with me, just fake it, right? We need a God of judgment on one hand because without a God of judgment, there's no hope for the oppressed people of the world. Oh, but on the other hand, without a God of mercy, 
a God who forgives. There's no hope for people like us. So which one is it? Is God just? Is he merciful? That's what Abraham's wrestling through here. But the second moral dilemma God's forcing Abraham to wrestle with is this. What kind of a God does Abraham want God to be? What kind of God does Abraham want God to be? There's a test here for Abraham and for us. Because to Abraham, these two cities, they weren't just like randomly picked cities like Modesto, you know, or to California, or Oatmeal, Texas. They weren't just like two cities on some side of the country and some flyover states Abraham never heard of before. No, no, no. These were two specific cities whose armies had personally attacked Abraham just in a few chapters before. They had tried to harm Abraham, kill Abraham, hurt Abraham. So when God says, Abraham, I've been thinking about bringing judgment on, wait for it, Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's how that runs through Abraham's mind. Abraham, I'm thinking about judging your enemies. Hmm? I'm thinking about putting an end to the people who tried to hurt you, steal from you, kill you. What do you think I should do about them? What kind of a God do you want me to be to your enemies? What if God asked you something like that? (laughs) I'm thinking about ending all those red hat cities with the red hat mayors. Ending all the blue hat states, the blue hat governors, right? I'm thinking about ending that nation, people group, ethnic group. What should I do about it, son, daughter? They've done real evil and they've done real evil to you. What do you think should happen to them? Make a choice, take a stand, right? What do you want, Abraham? Do you want judgment on your enemies? Who do you want me to be? Take your stand now. And what Abraham, what he he does next, in the middle of all this wrestling is remarkable. What What he chooses next, I think, is to use the most overused word ever, unprecedented here. Where he chooses to stand might just change everything about where you and I and we choose to stand. Look at verse 22. It says the men, these are the angels here. They're sort of like God's city health inspectors here, sin inspectors. The men, the angels, they turned away and they went towards Sodom. But look at this. Abraham remained standing where? Before the Lord. Does he stand with this people, this group, these people, those people, with himself, with Sodom? No, before Abraham stands with anyone, he stands before someone. For Abraham stands with anyone, hear me, he stands before God. And I want to tell you, if you and I, if we want to be the kind of people who are a blessing in the world right now, who can do what is right and just in the world, this is where we have to take our stand first. Before we stand with anyone, we stand before someone. We must stand before God. You're like, all right, okay, okay, all right. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Here we go. What does Abraham do here as he takes his stand before God in a remarkable turn of events? Abraham prays for his enemies. Will you, God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked? Treating the righteous and wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is remarkable, is it not? Right? In a world full of bloodlust, shame and honor, Abraham does not ask for revenge. 
Because revenge, in this day, that, that's just the way it worked, wasn't it? I mean, you shame me, I shame you back. You mock my side on social media, I get to mock your side back, right? Your side unfairly characterizes mine on the news channel. My side gets to unfairly characterize yours on the other news channel. And by the way, doesn't all of that sound exhausting? Maybe that's why we're all so anxious and tired and exhausted right now. I mean, it does sound exhausting. And maybe that's why Abraham said, I'm not playing that game anymore. I'm not playing this cultural warrior game, some weird version of faith that's got more to do with winning at all costs than being a person who can do what's right and just and be a blessing. Maybe that's why Abraham took his stand somewhere else. Abraham doesn't ask God to get him to nuke the dirty pagans, right? He doesn't even pray for his own family in the city. His nephew Lot was there, Lot's family. He doesn't pray for the people just like him. He doesn't even do the morally neutral thing of just sitting back and letting God be God, right? He could have just said, you're going to judge him, huh, God? Well, far be it from me to get in the way of the Almighty. I am but dust and ashes. Thy will be done. No, no, no. He takes a stand before God. He prays for the city, and he asks for God to spare the wicked. Now, <laughs> how about you? How about me? Do you pray for that group you have a hard time with. There's one thing I know about you. It's you got a hard time with some kind of group. You're like, Morgan, I'm looking at him today. All right. I get that. Do you pray? When you pray, bring them low. Or do you pray like Abraham? God, would you spare the wicked, immoral people who have hurt me? Abraham makes his stand before God and prays for his enemies to be spared. Will you? Will I? Will we? You're like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but how? How? It's my question for you. How did Abraham do this? What moved his heart to do this? Look at this. I want to try to show you. Abraham discovered here something in God's heart. I think it was what God was after all along. Something here in the heart of God that enabled him to make this kind of stand in the world. To be different in the world. Not to give in to the peer pressure and all the games and the blue hat, red hat stuff that would push him to, to make a stand, take a stand in some other kind of group. He makes a stand right here. How? It's this thing he shows you. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay, what's he appealing to here? Catch this. Abraham, you gotta see this. He is appealing for God Almighty to save and to spare and forgive the evil people because God is just. Woo, hang on, you're like, I don't even understand that. That blows your mind. Because when Abraham here, when he, when he asks, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a rhetorical question, right, teachers? Which is the same as a statement of fact. You look at your kids later, your teenage kids. I look at my teenage kids later today. This is gonna happen, I guarantee you. Children, will you all be doing the dishes tonight? That's a statement of fact, as in you all will be doing the dishes tonight. And the judge of all the earth will do right. God has to punish for the sake of justice. But Abraham asked, would you be willing to forgive for the sake of justice. And what's the proposed basis for this justice? Verse 24. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Oh, wait, wait, what's that? The basis for God's justice could be not the wrongdoing of the majority, 
but the righteousness of the minority. Listen, Abraham's not asking God to ignore evil in order to save. No, what he's asking is this. Could God value the righteousness of the few so much it covers the wickedness of the many? He's asking, is our record all we have to go on? Or is it possible that the record of a righteous few could stand in the place, overwhelm, overcome all the unrighteous, undeserving many? Now, the reason, the reason I think it's easy to miss some of what Abraham's doing here is because we live in our culture now, not his culture then. Okay, we live in one of the most, sociologists tell us this, one of the most individualistic cultures in human history. What I mean by that is we don't have any idea of, uh, of what the idea of corporate responsibility looks like, how it functions in a culture. We believe solely in individual responsibility. Now hang with me here for this, okay? I'm gonna try to get you in Abraham's mindset. We say today, it doesn't matter what my father did, mother did, my race is done, my people have done. I am not responsible for what anyone else has done. I should be judged on my record alone. Kind of dangerous words there if you think about it, but okay. But most people, I'm gonna tell you, you travel a bit, get around the world, you discover most people have a more, I don't know, balanced view, certainly nuanced view. And I think the Bible does too. And here's what I think the Bible presents us with. Of course you are responsible for what you've done. You are an individual before God. And what you do absolutely matters and you must take full ownership of your life your choices, your feelings, and you cannot control another person's choices or behavior, but there also exists the reality, the impact of something called corporate responsibility. The idea that someone, somehow, you're connected to somewhere, that just impacts you, impacts you. Now, we get, we get really bent out of shape about this, but it's all through the Bible, and let me just try to give you one example of many. Y'all remember, don't you, the bedtime story of Achan, in the book of Joshua. Before you're like, oh, I read that one time and that was all. Yeah. Don't worry, we're not doing that lesson in kids' church today. But back in the book of Joshua, God tells his people, okay, I don't want you to be imperialistic. I don't want you to enrich yourself through conquest like the other nations do. If you conquer this city, the city of Ai, it's for the sake of justice, not money. Any money you get from the city goes into the tabernacle. It cares for the tabernacle, for the priest, especially it cares for the poor. God tells them, don't keep the money for yourselves. But a guy named Achan, been listening a little too much to the old Steve Miller band, you're welcome, boomers, right? He takes the money and runs, right? He goes on and he takes the money and he runs and he keeps all this money for himself. He hides it underneath his tent and when he's discovered, he, he took the money, but his whole family are executed. Now, when we hear that, we're like, oh, what is, we're aghast. But I think the majority of the world, when they hear something like that, they're like, well, that's just kind of how it works sometimes. You know? Let me ask you, Christians, was God just or unjust when he did that? If you really want to push the issue, the Bible believes so much in corporate responsibility. It says you are either in Christ or in Adam. In other words, you and I stand either forgiven or condemned based on our connection with someone else. Is that fair? No. Is it spiritual reality? Absolutely. But do you know what else is not fair? 
the idea that someone else's righteousness, choices, actions, behavior could cover your lack of righteousness, choices, goodness. And if you understand that, now you can see why. What Abraham is doing here is amazing. He's asking the previously unasked question in the world. God, could your justice work in reverse? Could someone get not what they deserved, not what their community or people group deserved, but something else altogether new? Could I get God? Could I get the mercy and the blessing and the favor and the forgiveness due someone else if it's true that the sins of someone else can bring judgment on me? What about the possibility that the righteousness of someone else could come to me as well? He's asking, is my only hope my own record? Is the only hope for humankind our own record? And if that's what you believe, like, yeah, my record is all I got, of course you divide the world into red hat, blue hat. There's no possibility of forgiveness, no possibility of grace. It's only us and them and judgment on them. That's called tribalism, church. Aren't the people of God supposed to be different? Yes. Wasn't Abraham different? Yes. Abraham took his stand in the world before God based on something altogether new. He took a stand before God based on grace. And now the question is, how far down will the grace of God go? Verse 29. Once again, Abraham spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? God said, for the sake of 40, I won't do it. And he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I won't do it if I find 30. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I won't destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I won't destroy it. I mean, to Abraham's astonishment, maybe shock, God keeps saying, yes, 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 yes. Could the righteous few cover the unrighteous many. God says, yes, 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 yes. Now you're getting an Abraham. Now you're seeing who I really am. Oh, but here's the shocker with this story. When it reaches its climax, just when you think Abraham's going to go at one last step and ask one more time, Abraham goes home. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. But you're like, like whoa, 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 Abraham, buddy, you can't do that now, right? I mean, you got to like go grab God's sleeve, tug it a little bit harder. Why did you stop? You're thinking something should happen next, but nothing does. And the city's lost. So what are we waiting for here in the story? What logically should come next, huh? Well, what should come next is Abraham asking the question, Lord God, though I am but dust and ashes, allow me to speak one more time. What about one God? Would you spare the city for the sake, behalf, one? The question never comes. Why not? Maybe Abraham lost his nerve, like, man, that's a lot to ask for. Or maybe he realized if he got down to like one righteous person, the only one he could possibly appeal to in the city was Lot nephew who though he was more moral than the people around him he's only kind of like relatively righteous I mean when Abraham couldn't see one truly righteous person he gave up as great as he was he was unable to save Sodom and Gomorrah because he needed someone else he needed someone greater than him someone way greater than Lot he needed the one truly only righteous person 
And that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. How so? Let's see. Abraham prayed for the people who could have hurt him. But Jesus prayed for people who were killing him. Abraham stood outside the city. And yet he risked his life for those for whom he prayed. But Jesus Christ went into the city and he gave his life for those for whom he prayed. Abraham was representing these people, but he kept saying, God, don't judge me for doing it. But Jesus said, I am representing all the wickedness for all mankind, humankind for all time. And I will take the judgment. Abraham stood as a priest for people. He discovered the principle that the righteousness of one can overcome the unrighteousness of another. But Jesus fulfills it because Jesus is the righteous one. Abraham should have said, God, will you save for the sake of one righteous person? And God would have said, yes, I will. If you have the right one, the right one, the right person, God would have said, yes, Abraham, I will save (laughs) through the priestly pleading intercession and sacrifice of one righteous person. And though you can't see him now, that one is coming. He's going to be your great, 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 great grandson. And through him, all the world will be blessed. And through his perfect righteous life, he will save the many unrighteous for all those who ask for his record to be theirs. Of course, of course, it brings up this question now, right? I mean, where, where do you stand with God? Where do I stand with God? Are you standing on your own record? Like, I'm a good person. I do my best. I try hard. I'm really sincere. Huh? That's called standing on your own record. And if that's all you got, if that's all I have, listen, we stand condemned before God. But, but there is a record, I want to tell you, from one truly righteous person who has prayed for you forgiven you his enemy loves you while we were sinners Christ died for us so that we could be spared from the eternal judgment that's justly due us and when you ask hear me for his record to become yours when you say Jesus you are all I can stand on all I have to stand on is the grace of God on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground sinking sands listen that's what it means to become a Christian Ultimately, uh, for all of us, though, that's what it means to live as a Christian right now. To live as a Christian in our world right now means this, my last thought, means we take our stand on the record of Jesus and we move out into the world based on that in order to be a blessing. And yeah, before we ever pick up the cause of justice and righteousness, because we have to, we have to, right? Before we advocate, because we have to do that. Before we speak for those who can't speak for themselves, because we have to do that. Before we try to rescue the perishing, because we're commanded to do that, are we not? Before we ever do that, where do we take our stand first? Worship looks like taking our stand here before God, hands up, heart open, on the basis of the grace of God, praying even for those who would wish us harm. It's a hard teaching, isn't it? But there's one who has already done it and gone ahead of us, and that's why we're here. I hope that we, in his footsteps, not just of Abraham, but of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we can maybe do the same. We take a moment here, church, and we're gonna pray and ask uh, for God to be with us, to minister to us, even to be here present in our city. Lord, would you use this church? I'm praying you'd use us today. Each individual and us together corporately to be a kind of priest in our city. Lord, would you save the city? Would you spare those here who don't know you? Would you save our nation, save the world? Would you do that? Would you intervene? Lord, we're asking you today, like you've done for many of us, you've intervened in our lives. If you come, 
say to us not because of our record, but because of yours. And we ask that you'd help us to be not just like Abraham, to be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Thank you, even when we're not, you've made a way for us to be loved, held, safe and secure. And I'm praying for those who've never said, Jesus, your record needs to become mine. I'm tired of going on my own steam, my own record, my own sincerity. I need you to save me. Lord, would this day be that day for them? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.